Hello there. I want to open up a conversation today about how do we become more sovereign? And I'm going to do that through the vehicle of the subject of education. Now, don't think, oh, I'm not raising a kid, this isn't for me, I'm not an educator, it's not for me, because it is relevant for everyone. Don't worry, we'll get there. And there is a Plutarch angle that we'll also get to in a sec. Because, of course, this is the cost of glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman leaders so that we can live better lives. And I hope you'll agree, it's fair to say that we want to live more sovereign lives. And we use Plutarch's writings, his biographies especially, as our guide, but also other ones. Now, to frame this sovereignty question, I want to start with a different one from the education world. Let me ask you something. What's so good about the liberal arts? And maybe we can refine it. If you're like me, you've read dozens of articles on this subject, or maybe you've just seen the titles. There are plenty of books, too, that propose answers to the question, specifically, why should we study the liberal arts? It's an important question. It relates to how we raise our kids, the laws and the policies that we pass about education through our political systems, the curriculums we favor. And it's not just that, but it relates to how we raise ourselves, what kind of things we devote our self-cultivation energy towards. So why? Why study the liberal arts? If you are in favor, would you say it's because they make us sensitive to the perspectives of others? They teach us how to think critically they show us how to admire the good and the beautiful. But then again, do you really need to, say, devote several years of your life, pay tens of thousands of dollars or euros or pounds or whatever to study each year these things and then maybe get some kind of certification? Do you really have to do that? Or is it really necessary that we as a society even make sure that all students have, quote, access to them when they are children, the liberal arts, even at the expense of practical disciplines like PE, physical education, and math, and you know, personal finance, whatever the case may be. Well, back up for a second. Why do so many of the positive answers to why we should study the liberal arts seem maybe romantic, or trite, or vague, or at least unlikely to make anyone change their mind. Maybe they're preaching to the choir in these articles. I think partly it has something to do with the fact that so many treatments do kind of what I just did. They don't define clearly what they mean by liberal arts. And depending on which audience you're talking to, there might be a very different conception of what the word liberal arts means, the two words. And Maybe it's liberal arts, or maybe you want to call them the humanities, or maybe it's great books. Uh, those are all overlapping conceptions. They all do have different connotations. Those are all terms with their own different histories, long histories. So why study them? Well, if you've picked a term, you've already gone down the path quite a ways into determining how that conversation is going to go, that conversation of why we should do this. For example, the liberal arts tend to contrast with things like trade skills. The humanities tends to contrast with math and the sciences. And the great books tend to contrast with, 
say, the latest trends. For example, more ephemeral bestsellers or other topics that haven't yet withstood the test of time. But all the same, each of these terms, in one way or another, is going to pick out a set of topics or themes for study or books, whatever they are, a set that should take many years to assimilate and probably require some amount of hard work and sacrifice. History, drama, epic, maybe geometry and astronomy are in there, in the liberal arts especially. But it's not because they can get you a job, so to speak, but instead it's for some general goal of cultivation, typically. To make some progress, though, in this debate about, let's call them, the liberal arts, for our purposes here, we need to get a clearer conception of what it is we're talking about. And one way to do that is to study the concept's history. Liberal arts is a good candidate for this kind of archaeology practice, verbal archaeology, because arguably, of the various educational concepts or terms we just mentioned, this is one of the oldest. And here's where Plutarch comes in. Lately, I've been revisiting a text in the works of Plutarch entitled On the Education of Children. And it's an interesting essay, not just because it's old and early, uh, but because it was hugely influential in an important era of Western history in the Renaissance. So think 15th and 16th century Europe. And scholars today actually think that this text was probably mistakenly attributed to Plutarch himself. It was probably written by some other contemporary of his. But in any case, if you read it, it's easy to see how people would think that it's one of Plutarch's own genuine works. It's of a very similar mindset to Plutarch, similar philosophy from around the same time period. And yes, it was a very influential little book, as one classical scholar states, it was so influential from the early Renaissance until the 19th century that it is reasonable to conclude that this was largely responsible, this text, for the transmission of the classical education tradition to the West. So that's a pretty bold statement. Well, anyway, let's go to the text. Check this out. Here's the first sentence. Again, the essay is called On the Education of Children. And the author begins, quote, Let us consider what may be said of the education of free children and what advantages they should enjoy to give them a sound character when they grow up. Free children. And sometimes the word there is translated as freeborn. The original Greek word is eleutheros or eleftheros. And here you have the original word, the original form, where the term liberal arts ultimately derives, the liberal and liberal arts. Liberal arts comes from Latin, artes liberales, and it means the arts or subjects or fields of knowledge that are fitting for free people. A liberalis in Latin is a free person. But the concept actually originates in Greek thought, Remember, the Greeks were writing and teaching and philosophizing centuries before those Latin-speaking Romans. And the Romans took over the Greek education system and made it their own. And it was, for example, getting really fashionable at Rome in the days of Gaius Marius's youth 
to send your Roman son to be educated in the Greek education system, to learn Greek. And that, that word, uh, artes liberales, that, that concept actually first occurs in Cicero, for what it's worth. So what does free mean to the Greeks? Well, most immediately, it's a social class, the polar opposite of a slave. Slavery was widespread in the pre-modern world. It was widespread in antiquity. But it's not just that. Where this concept, uh, free, really originates as a kind of educational principle or criterion is in the Greek city-states, the free Greek city-states of the 5th and 4th centuries BC. This is the world of Pericles and Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, and Lysander coming soon. It was important to the Greeks that their cities be free, eleutheros, that they made their own laws, that they did what they wanted to with public revenues and decided who to ally with and who to go to war with, that they were independent and sovereign. In fact, sovereign is sometimes a better translation of the Greek concept eleutheros. It's about not just being free, but being able to ensure that you stay free, using force if necessary. A sovereign city-state had its own citizen army, and its free citizens had to be capable not just of defending themselves, but of governing themselves, and of obeying the laws that they legislated for themselves. So there's a lot in that concept of eleutheros. So what would happen today, thought experiment, if you change the term from the liberal arts to the sovereign arts? Do you think that the concept would contain the same set of books and subjects? What if sovereign arts was what we were trying to get reintroduced to public school curriculums or funded better by our various foundations? Do you think you'd still read Shakespeare's sonnets in your sovereign arts class? Or would you still make those kids learn to play an instrument, study astronomy? We'll dive deeper into this remarkable little text, this little essay, next week. But I want to give you one takeaway that I think you can use on a kid or on yourself. The author of the text, let's call him Plutarch, just for simplicity's sake, he says that to get excellence, that is, to get arete, uh, the Greek word for virtue, which is broader than our word virtue, as we've talked about before on this show, to get that precious and rare arete in a human person, you need three ingredients to contribute. Nature, reason, and habit. Okay, so reason is logos. And what he means, really simply put, is good content. You have to have your assumptions right, and the subject matter, you have to have that selected well. You have to have good logos, good words, and a kind of a good rationale for your, for it, for your education system. Okay, so that's reason. Then habit is ethos, and this is about practice. Doing whatever it is you're doing over and over until like water dripping on stone, you finally change the shape of that intractable rock that is a human character. And the third is 
nature, and that's thusis in Greek, and that's your natural talents, but also your natural inclinations. And wise trainers have always known that you have to take account of the natural gifts or tendencies of your trainee. As an example of taking nature into account, Plutarch points out that if you have a really naturally fertile plot of land, the sort of land that could produce amazing crops, then if you neglect that plot, it is going to get much wilder and harder to tame quicker than a mediocre piece of land. Because it's so fertile, it gets out of control more easily. That's interesting, right? And here's a principle that we can use. He says, quote, and he's, he's listing a number of examples here, why wonder at other instances, seeing as we do that many of the wildest animals become tame by being subjected to struggle. And he's talking about horses and dogs here, yes, but also people. And the principle here is, the more forceful the nature of the subject that you are training, that is the, the thing being trained or the person being trained, the better it will respond to hard effort. The more forceful the nature of, let's call it the trainee, the better it will respond to hard effort. And he continues with an example about Thessalians, who are uh, peoples from a large area of Greece that's sort of a little less civilized than, say, Athens or Sparta. He says, quote, When someone asked a Thessalian, who are the most mild-mannered and peaceful of the Thessalians, the man responded, whichever ones happen to just be returning from war, end quote. So, challenges can turn the wild mild temporarily at least. Wild children are easy to spot, right? But adults are often good at concealing their restlessness, driving it down and burying it, transforming it into anxiety and unhealthy habits. And challenges can be tools that we can use to tame ourselves, to calm and master ourselves, to establish a more sovereign mind over our persons. So, do you know someone in need of a challenge? Stay strong, stay ancient. Until next time, this is Alex Petkus.